The reading today is taken from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Well, thank you for reading. Thank you again for reading in such a fine accent. I actually thought I was back in the land flowing with milk and honey there when I, when I heard that. Uh, it's good to be with you again this week, and uh, it's, it's great to finish out these three sessions in the book of Exodus. Well, like him or not, everyone, everyone, all of us, have an opinion about God. For some people, the more hardened opponent, perhaps the opinion will be a version of, I don't believe in God, and I hate him. He doesn't exist, but I'm outraged at the things that he says. Then there's the more benevolent, like the author Julian Barnes, uh, who expressed his unbelief in a wonderful phrase. He said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I think we can kind of appreciate what he's getting at. He doesn't exist. The idea of God, he doesn't exist, but I kind of wish, something within me kind of wishes he did. Poetry, art, songs, music, they're all full of opinions about God. But opinions are very different from facts. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen God at work in these early chapters in the book of Exodus through the hardships of the lives of his people in Egypt, and we've begun to see what he's like. As we've seen him working, we've seen him doing things, we've seen what he's like. But today we get to see God as he wants to be known, God as he tells us what he's like from his own lips. And wherever you stand on this question, hearing what he has to say here is important. You see, if you want to reject God, it's wise to know who you're rejecting. Make sure you're rejecting the right person, the right God. Lots of people say they reject God, and when I talk to them about the God that they're rejecting, I would reject that God as well. So make sure if that's you, you reject the true God, not a caricature. But also, if you want to have a genuine relationship with God, you need to know what he's really like. And that's what we're going to consider this lunchtime. We left Moses last time uh, being raised in Pharaoh's house. By now he's got a family and for various reasons, bit of back and forth here and there, he's now a shepherd in a place called Midian. When we pick the story up in the passage that was read for us, he's tending sheep and God meets him in a burning bush. Now bush fires weren't actually unusual in the hot desert, but the fact that the bush, we're told, didn't burn up was unusual. As is the voice. It is unusual that a voice comes out of a bush. But this is how God calls Moses 
to be the redeemer of his oppressed people. Uh, in the, in the, the couple of verses on from the bit that uh, we have here, uh, God summarizes how he will use Moses. He says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That's what God is calling Moses to do. But before that can happen, he needs to understand who God is. Again, a bit later in uh, this passage in chapter 3 and verse 13, Moses asked, well, suppose I go to the Israelites, as you've told me to do, and uh, I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? What is your name? Is essentially what Moses is asking. Names aren't arbitrary in the Bible. They reflect the nature of the thing, the the nature of the person uh, that is being named. So the question that he's asking, the question that Moses is asking is, Who are you and what are you like? And then again, verse 14 of the passage says, I am who I am. Now that's really important for us to grasp before we think about anything else about God. God says to Moses, I am has sent you. It's an unusual way to describe yourself, isn't it? Is God being cryptic? No, he's not. Because what he's doing is describing his uniqueness. I am has sent you. The one who always is. The one who is self-existent. The one who is in a class by himself. One early church father thought the name I am described God in this way. He said God is holding everything together in himself. He possesses being, neither beginning nor ending. He is like a kind of boundless and limitless sea of being, surpassing all thought and time and nature. We could spend hours on end just thinking over that reflection. But God can't describe himself in relation to anything other than himself because he isn't like anything else. He is unique. God can only name himself by himself. If we want to know what God is like, we must remove any created or creaturely idea from our minds. Otherwise, we end up making God in our own image in some way. Now, it's tempting when you hear all of this to say, well, look, ah, that's, a, that's all a bit difficult. Those concepts are a bit high. A bit lofty. And actually, how relevant is that to my Christian life? How relevant is that to what goes on in here? The conversations we're having. The things of the nation. But it is as we think deeply on that name. I am. Or the Lord. Or Yahweh. As uh, he expresses his name as the story continues. It is as we dwell on that. That our diminished view of God is taken away. You see, you cannot think high enough thoughts about the living God. And meditating on this, I am what I am, taking time to contemplate his greatness, his uniqueness, it is as that happens, that is how we are changed. That is how we love him more, how we hate our sin more, and how we serve others in the light of all of that more. But this exchange in the bush, Moses discovers more of what God is like He isn't just self-existent and grand and awesome. There are two other striking qualities that he discovers that I want us to see. The first is there in verse 5. Turn over the page and have a look. Verse 5. Moses comes close. He hears the voice in the bush and he decides to approach. In verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Moses discovers that this eternal God is holy. See, before God told Moses 
who he was, he showed him who he was through the miracle of the burning bush. Verse 2 tells us that the angel of the Lord appears. The angel of the Lord is a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. The word angel simply means messenger. We could think, oh, he is a messenger of God. But then verse 4 says that when the Lord, the Lord himself, saw that Moses had gone to look in the bush, God himself, we're told, called out to him. The messenger doesn't just speak for God, but as God. This is a visible expression of the invisible God. Moses is in the presence of God. And so he finds himself on holy ground. The ground is holy because of the presence of the one who is holy. There is a gulf between creature and creator. Created and creator. The divine and everything else. And that gulf between the two is absolute. But Moses cannot then come too close. Holy ground is dangerous territory for sinful man. Indeed, when Moses realizes he's in the presence of God, he's terrified. Verse 6, he recoils. God is perfect in purity, in beauty, in goodness. And when you see that, it is a scary thing for sinful people like us to behold. So, if you like, if the immensity of God, the The bigness and the eternal self-existence of God blows our minds. The holiness of God should sober us. It should influence the way that we think about him. The way that we speak about him. The way that we act towards him. Yes, if you know God, you know him as Father. But as as the Lord's Prayer tells us, he is our Father in heaven. That is in the holy place. He is set apart. And so we must approach him with reverence. There should be nothing casual about how we approach God. Now, of course, we say that some people find this offensive because if you think that human beings are basically good and if you think that our problem is just that we need a bit of help to be better people in life, or if you think in some way that God isn't as holy as to be fearful, then you find this idea hard to stomach. But I want to suggest to you this afternoon, you want God to be holy. Because it means that there is a standard of goodness in the world. There is right and wrong. There is something in the world that we can't actually mess up. See, much as the implications of a holy God might scare me, I do want there to be objective goodness, objective right and objective wrong. But of course, all of this presents us with a difficulty. You see... How is it then that we can relate to such a one? How is it that we can come to such a God and have a relationship with him? Surely a perfectly holy God isn't interested in ordinary people, especially ordinary sinful people. But the God of the burning bush actually loves unholy people. This meeting with Moses reveals not only that he's holy, but secondly, our second point, that he is gracious. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I am the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then says, I have seen my people suffer in Egypt. And then verse 8, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the God of your father. I'm sorry, I am the God of your father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is a, a familiar refrain in the early part of the book of Exodus. I am 
What it's telling us is that the, the I am, the eternal God, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of perfect holiness, is the God of the covenant. He is the God who has a relationship with his people and he hears his people and he knows his people and he's going to act to rescue his people. See, when we talk about God as we should, belonging in a class of his own, great and awesome as he is, or we talk about him being perfectly holy like this, it can make him sound impersonal and distant, far off, untouchable. But here God reminds Moses that he is anything but. He is personally involved with his people through the covenant that he graciously made with Abraham. And he is taking the initiative to stoop down and to save. And notice how all-encompassing this salvation will be. He says he will save the people from their slavery to Pharaoh to the promised land, to Canaan, with all of the abundance of the things that are there, the flowing, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he will do it. Because only he can. The people are utterly helpless. If you were here last week, we saw two weeks ago, the people of God are crushed under Pharaoh's boot. They can't save themselves. They're just incapable of doing it. But because God keeps his promise, their covenant God will do that. And it's the same divine pattern for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Israel's slavery here is a picture of our slavery to sin. We're helpless, actually, to sort ourselves out. We're helpless to do anything about that problem. Our desires have a hold over us, don't they? They control us. They lead us following along after them, and we we find it so hard to resist. We can resist for a while. We can try and behave ourselves for a while, but really, we're not able to do that for very long. If we're honest with ourselves, if we're prepared to be honest with ourselves, we know that we need a Savior to come to us from outside of us. We can't do it ourselves. If we are to be rescued, God will have to stoop down to save us. And that is exactly what he's done in Jesus Christ. That is the good news at the very heart of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ, the eternal son. The one who for eternity was in the presence of his father in heaven in glory. Well, he left the glories of heaven and took on flesh in order to identify with us. In order that he could go to the cross to deal with our sin. In order that he could rise again to new life three days later. In order that he could restore our relationship with a perfectly holy God. That is how unholy people have a relationship with a holy God. We are saved from Satan and sin and death itself. And we are saved to God through faith in Christ. That's how we are able to come into the presence of holiness. And whilst we live by faith in this God now, with all of the struggles that life in a fallen world brings, one day we will arrive in our promised land in glory, where we'll experience the fullness of God's abundant blessing, where there'll be no more death or dying, no more pain or suffering. The God who promised to save the Israelites in this way, in Exodus chapter 3, is a gracious God, and he will save you. All you need to do is to cry out to him 
for his rescue. So take your sin to God. Tell him all about it. Tell him all about the stuff that you can't get off your conscience. Confess all of it. Because he'll hear it. And then receive from him the deluge of grace. The torrent of mercy and forgiveness that he gives. He will do it. Because he is a God who keeps his word. You see our infinite and holy and gracious God is faithful. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God we praise you. That in all of your majestic holiness, purity, beauty, goodness. You're a God of great grace and you've come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we can be reconciled to you. Help us to trust him and to walk humbly with him, we pray. For we ask it in his name. Amen.